0: Good morning. I actually expected a lot less people. I thought a lot of people were leaving for the holidays. So uh, surprising. Um, As you uh, may know, we began a a series on virtues and vices. Uh, We started off uh, on May 7th on contentment and discontentment. We followed with encouragement versus criticism. Humility versus pride, trust versus anxiety, courage versus fear, and today we're going to be doing generosity versus self-indulgence. And then next Sunday, uh, Dave Cole will uh, finish off the series talking about forgiveness versus bitterness. When you talk about money, it's always a very sensitive subject, and uh, especially um, in a a place like this, where we have probably, on, on average, the, the people that would attend JICF would be a little bit better off than, than many Indonesians. And uh, so I feel like we need to begin with a word of prayer to open our hearts and our minds to what God may have to share from his word. Lord, we, we confess um, that often we avoid talking about this uh, sensitive topic. Um, we like to hold on to the money that we have the possessions that we have we for various reasons we aren't as generous as you may want us to be And father I pray as we look at your word look at our own hearts and, and look at your heart that we might understand more and more about what it means to be generous And why we should be. And the benefits of being generous. And the dangers of being self-indulgent. I pray that you'd soften our hearts. And perhaps as a result of this, help us to open our hands and our hearts to those around us. We pray these things in the name of your son. Amen. Now... um, Generosity versus self-indulgence. You may use the term uh, generosity more than you use the term self-indulgence. In fact, um, I needed to look up the the dictionary uh, to see exactly what self-indulgence means. But I looked, first of all, at generosity, how the, the dictionary defines generosity. And it says the quality of being kind, understanding, and not selfish especially the willingness to give money and other valuable things to others. It doesn't always mean being generous with money, but oftentimes it's used in that context, and that's the way we're going to be using it this morning. We're talking about um, the willingness to give money and other valuable things to others. Self-indulgence. It's defined as the excessive or unrestrained gratification of one's own appetites, desires, or whims. Basically, the the focus is on one's own. (laughs) If you're self-indulgent, what you're doing is you're using your money to satisfy your own appetites, your own desires, your own whims, you're not thinking of others, you're thinking of yourself. With generosity, we're thinking of others, how we can help others. With self-indulgence, we're thinking about ourselves and how we can help ourselves. My, my hope this morning is to persuade you of the benefits of generosity, that they're long-lasting, and it's beneficial to be generous. Comparing that with the pleasure of self-indulgence, which is only short-lived and dangerous. I like this quote. It says, Never trade temporary pleasure for permanent regret. And my fear is that many of us, when we stand before God in the day of judgment, will regret how we spent the money that we were given to take care of on this earth, and I hope that doesn't happen. So I hope what we say today, what I say today, will have some impact, not only on your understanding of Scripture, but on your the way you spend the, the money and live your life. First of all, I'd like to look at our hearts, how we tend to use money um, or not use money, and then I'm going to look at God's heart. We'll look at a couple of passages in Scripture to see how God views these issues. And with regard to our heart, I'm going to start off with myself. Okay? Um, And I want you to kind of understand the journey that I went on from being a young, young boy in the U.S. to where I am today it's changed a lot from the way that I was raised because of what the Word of God says and also because of the experiences I've had. So if you bear with me, <laughs> um, I'm the oldest of five children. Um, I was raised, uh, my parents always said I was, we were middle class. I got that mentioned to me many, many times. My parents were middle class, we were middle class. I grew up in Southern California, um, and I was raised to think that if somebody was poor, that meant that they were lazy. I grew up in a a farming family. My grandparents, my my uncles uh, were farmers, grew oranges, citrus, um, and people worked hard. Farmers work hard. And the people that were poor were obviously poor, right? Because they're lazy. That's what I was raised to think. I became a believer when I was about 16 years of age. And our family soon thereafter moved to a a wealthy suburb in Dallas. Okay. the reason my parents chose that area was because they had a good school system, my parents wanted me to get a good education, and the schools were better and nicer neighborhoods so we, they bought a house in a affluent area of, of Dallas. Um, and both when I was in California and also when I was you know, in, in Dallas, we lived near a country club and we didn't belong to the country club, but it was that kind of um, area. I started through a friend of of mine attending a church in the Dallas area, and the church was also in an affluent, fairly wealthy area, and I think the elders of the church actually To my recollection, I think they all had Mercedes-Benz cars. They were doctors, and, you know, I mean, they were fairly well-to-do people, and probably most of the people that attended the church were pretty well-to-do. Everybody it was a Bible church, so there were a lot of people that came because they wanted to learn the Bible. But I I really can't remember us talking about the poor (laughs) or the needy. It It seemed like it was kind of a hot topic or a sensitive topic people avoided. And in fact, I I think um, if I remember correctly, I was even told that, you know, we we shouldn't judge anybody else about the way they spent money because that was between them and God. I graduated from high school. I went to uh, SMU, which is not the one in Singapore. It's the one in Dallas, (laughs) Southern Methodist University, which... I understand from Zinjaya is now nicknamed Southern Millionaire's University because <laughs> it's, it's in a very wealthy area of the Dallas. I mean, it's a separate city called Highland Park, or University Park, I guess. And uh, a lot of mansions, and that's where the, the wealthy people lived. Um, and while I was at SMU, I worked in a Christian bookstore, which was not far away from Dallas Seminary. And so I, I, I nonetheless worked 20, 25 hours a week. I would uh, go to the bookstore. I would um, open the boxes of books. I would, you know, divide them up, you know, for some to stay at the current bookstore and some to be sent to North Dallas, where the other bookstore was. And I would put the books in the back of my car, and I would drive, and that's what I would do uh, while I was going to SMU. One thing I noticed, though, is I I would always see the books that were delivered and were put on the shelves, and I was a little bit surprised because the only books that ever talked about money that I can remember were talking about how to stay out of debt and how to keep a a budget. I think a lot of uh, Larry Burkett books, if you remember who Larry Burkett is, um, there wasn't much in the way of how, how Christians should view money. And I was a little surprised because I recognized by that time that the Bible did talk quite a bit about money. So that was, that was kind of an interesting thing. It seemed like just the Christian community in general stayed away from this, this topic. Um, while I was going to get my MBA, I moved to Austin, and I remember reading a book called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, uh, a book by a guy named Ron Sider. And... I was kind of blown away by what I read. Um, first of all, it gave some statistics about uh, wealth in the U.S., and depending on how much money you earned, where you were as a percent of the country in terms of wealth. And I, I knew how much my father had made, and I mean, it wasn't like a lot, 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 but he worked for a multinational company and as, a, as a petroleum engineer and i looked at that and all of a sudden i realized that he was in the upper bracket of incomes in the us and then the book pointed out that if you're in the upper bracket in income in the us then you start looking at the world you're maybe you're in the top 1% of income in the world <laughs> you know and all of a sudden the, it dawned on me you know when the bible is talking about rich the rich my family was included in that and I, I would dare say most of the people in this audience are probably in the same category. I think if you looked at where you stand in regard to Indonesian income, wealth, you're probably in a top, top uh, bracket there. If you look at the income compared with the rest of the world, you're, you might be considered rich, even though you have been thinking to yourself that, oh, I'm just middle class. <laughs> Take a look at some statistics sometime. You may be surprised, as I was. What was also surprising to me is in this book, scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture, there was so much in the Bible talking about money and how we should use it. And I was really, really surprised because I went to a Bible church and it seemed like I never really heard all this stuff. you know. And maybe when I had read through the Bible, I just kind of read over it. I didn't really think about it, but it was just like all of a sudden, it was like a fire hose (laughs) um, of of verses from the Bible that talked about money. And I also should just say one thing I forgot to mention was I do remember in our church, in all fairness, um, when I was in the youth group, one of our leaders, it was kind of like Verity, one of the leaders was recognized that we needed to do something for the poor. But the poor were living on the other side of town. The poor people always lived in South Dallas. I was living in North Dallas. <laughs> so I never saw anybody that was poor. I mean, if you had asked me, who do you know that's poor, I, I don't know anybody. Even if I had read the verses and we need to help the poor, it's like, well, I don't know anybody that's poor to help because they were all living on the other side of town because that's the way often zoning works. And I do remember one Thanksgiving, we said, we need to do something for the poor. So what we did is we identified some families in South Dallas we bought a turkey, and we went down there and we delivered it to them. <laughs> that, was, that was the extent of what we did to help the poor. I kind of laugh at it now, but that's what we did. And then, all of a sudden, when I'm 35 years old, I moved to Indonesia. Okay, That was back in, in 1992. And I saw a lot of poverty, I could look around, there's a lot of there's a lot of poor poor folks. There's you know, there's also the people that, that um, we hire as Pimbantus, as Sopirs, um, people that you can you know, you walk down the street, you see, you you look out your window of your the place you live. It's it's much more mixed. So we have a lot greater chance to come into contact with people that are poor and needy than I did. In, in Dallas. And I think, to be honest, it's, it's more healthy. I think we kind of sanitize ourselves some places and, and I felt like, if I look back now, we just we, we kind of blocked out the poor and needy. It was uncomfortable. And I, I remembered uh, in verse, I think I read this in Rich Christians, it said, uh, the righteous man does not close his ears to the cries of the poor. The righteous man does not close his ears to the cries of the poor. And he said, sometimes we close our ears by choosing where we live. We can live in areas and around people that are just like ourselves, that don't make us feel uncomfortable, that don't challenge us. So we don't see any of that stuff and pretend it doesn't exist. And then, even more so, beginning in 2009, I started meeting refugees, and I realized I came into more and more contact with refugees that were um, in Jakarta and started coming to uh, GICF. And then I had more and more of these kinds of uh, experiences. I, I had more and more contact with people that were in need, not because of anything they had done, but because of their circumstances. So if we look at why we aren't generous. Um, I'm sure there's other reasons why we aren't generous, but these are the f- few things that I could think of. Uh, one is we're afraid of not having enough. We're afraid somehow of, of running out of what we have, so we want to hoard as much as we, as we can. You, you may remember in the Old Testament when the, the Israelites went into the desert, God provided manna every Morning for them and God said every morning you go out you collect the manna you take enough just enough for your household just enough for that day except the day before the Sabbath you can take two days worth and it will it will last for two days but there were some of the Israelites that hoarded and they took more than one day's worth of manna and it says that it ended up rotting and it was filled with maggots (laughs) and I think that's a kind of a good description maggots are the worms that flies come out of by the way that kind of is a good description I think sometimes of what happens when we hoard things it's like turns it rots and turns to maggots we think we're being clever by hoarding because we're afraid of the future Desire for comfort is another reason I think we um, aren't generous. We, we want to enjoy and be comforted in the things that we own. <clears throat> another reason I thought of was desire for significance. We think by having a lot of possessions, having a lot of things, we're going to be considered by others to be significant. And the fourth one that I thought about was uh, competitiveness. And I, my, from my experience, I think this tends to be more of an issue with guys than men with them than with women but men tend to be very competitive (laughs) for my experience and that's one of the reasons we we feel like the more we have um, it's it somehow um, means that we've we've won this competition we're we're competing with other people to have more or whatever so let's just talk about some of these a little bit one is uh, fear of not having enough okay Um, Some people are very afraid of not having enough food, not having enough clothing, not having a place to live, um, not having money for medical expenses, not having enough money for retirement, uh, maybe not having enough money for the education of their children. And I would say that probably for the food, clothing, and shelter, um, I'd say the majority of people that come to GICF are really not that concerned about that. But if you look at the book of James, James chapter 2, James is writing a church where there's a lot of people that are very poor. And apparently there's people that were coming to them, these, these believers, they were coming and they needed food and clothing and the people within the church were not willing to share because they were afraid that they wouldn't have enough if they did. And James says, look, if you really trust God, you will share from what little you have with somebody else. You won't think, of, what if I share today with this person, then I'm not, maybe not going to have enough for tomorrow. But that's apparently what they were thinking. You know, I've... I uh, have seen some situations where, with the refuge, with some of the refugees we support. You know, I, I remember one refugee, and I won't mention his name, but he was getting, for a single person, we're typically providing about one million, like six hundred thousand rupees per month, which is very little. They can survive; they have enough to eat. But it's very, very tough. They can rent a a Costco sign. They can survive, but it's, it's very, very little. And I had one refugee who came to me and said, you know, I have met somebody else that doesn't have anything. Is it okay with the church if I give some of what I've got to this other person? You know? That, that to me is, it was, I almost wanted to cry. It's like, he's, he's got so little, and yet he's willing to share from what little he has with somebody else. He's trusting God that God will provide whatever he needs. So I I think it may be an issue with some people in the church, but I said normally I don't think we have a fear of not having enough. Usually it's the other, other things. One is, a desire for comfort. You know, food and drink, we like to go to nice restaurants, we like to have some nice things to drink, we like to have nice clothes, branded clothes, or purses, or whatever other accessories. Um, we like to have um, a nice house, very big house, we like to have a nice furniture, furnishings. Um, transportation, we like to have a Nice car. I don't want the Kijong. I want a much nicer car, so it's more comfortable to drive in. Um, travel and entertainment. I like to fly here for vacation and go there. I like to have good... Uh, There's all these things where we like to spend money on ourselves because it's comfortable. And because we spend money on ourselves, we don't have that money to be generous with for other people. Desire for significance. I like this quote from Dave Ramsey. Um, it says, We buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. <laughs> we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. It's not just a matter of not being willing to spend what we earn our desire for significance, our desire for comfort, and it causes us, in some cases, to go into debt. We put a bunch of money on our credit card. We, not only, we spend more money than we earn because we want the comfort, we want the significance, we want these things. And not only are we not generous, we're, we're actually spending more than we should. Competitiveness. Um, I saw this bumper sticker for the first time when I was visiting my grandfather in Southern California. He had a tenant in his uh, garage apartment and um, this tenant had had a car with this bumper sticker on it that said, he who dies with the most toys wins. It's almost like there's a competition in life and the person that could end up at the end of their life with the most in the way of possessions is the guy that wins this competition. I mean, we laugh at it, at least I laughed at it, but I think the reality is oftentimes that's the way people live their lives. I, I told this story before, but I'll, I'll tell it again. When I was, um, since I've been in Indonesia, I go back every year to, <coughs> to the U.S. to visit my, my uh, parents. And while my grandfather was alive, I was visiting him as well. He lived, still lived in Southern California. My parents were living in Dallas, and I remember, you know, flying into um, LAX, the Los Angeles Airport, uh, renting a car, uh, driving into my grandfather's driveway, and uh, he met me at the the door of the house. He looks at me and he says, so Mike, what's your uh, net worth now? (laughs) I, I, I was really surprised. Um, and I said, Well, I, I, I have no idea, actually. I don't really keep track of that kind of stuff. Um, and I also remember times when we'd go into his uh, study and he'd pull out a piece of paper and he showed us all the stocks he owned and how much they were worth. Like he's, he's so proud of what he had accumulated. Um, I think a lot of it actually came from my grandmother and her parents, uh, but anyway, um, isn't, that, isn't that often true? That's the way the world looks at, at money. And if you can't win the competition if you give your money away, right? You only win the competition if you keep it and, and invest it and grow your estate and then at the end of your life you can be so proud because you can give your children or your grandchildren this, all this money. Um, from your estate. And look how big my estate was. I hope that's not the way we are. If we really trust God, we shouldn't be afraid. The, the right way to respond to fear is to trust God, is, as Jesus said in Matthew 6. He says, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and These things will be given to you. And if you look at the context, he's talking about food. He's talking about clothing. The basics that we need, Jesus says God will provide those things. Just seek him first. Seek his kingdom first. Seek to live a righteous life. And by doing so, God will provide what you need. That's a promise. It's quite clear to me. Don't worry about what you're going to eat tomorrow. Just every day has enough problems of its own. Don't, don't be afraid about tomorrow. Just trust God that he'll provide you what you need today. How do we respond to the desire for comfort? This was uh, an interesting thing I came across a few years back, and I, I kept it. Um, this was... Uh, Written by a, a Christian, um, in the early second century, and this gives you a, a flavor for what early Christians felt in terms of the way they gave money and the sacrifices that they were able to, were willing to make for their own comfort, comfort to help other people. Um, the Shepherd of Hermas, uh, that was uh, Ignatius, uh, from what I understand, was thinking that. Was, was thinking that perhaps it should be included in our New Testament, but uh, it was determined that it would not. But it says that um, we are encouraged to uh, purify our heart from the vanities of the world. And in the day in which you fast, you will taste nothing but bread and water, having reckoned up the price of the dishes of that day which you intended to have eaten you will give it to a widow or an orphan or to some person in want. What they would do is they would fast on a particular day. They would only eat bread and water. And then they would determine if we had eaten a normal meal, we would have spent so much. So that difference between what we spent on bread and water and what we would have spent on a normal meal, we're going to use that to give to a widow, to an orphan, to someone in want. That was a sacrifice that they were willing to make. It wasn't because they were trying to lose weight. It wasn't because they were trying to get closer to God. It was actually, they were concerned for the poor and they were willing to sacrifice what they ate and minimize their daily expenses in order to help a widow or an orphan or somebody in want. That's thinking of the needs of others. And when we have a desire to be comforted and to live a comfortable life, we need to think about other people. What could I do with this money that I am spending on myself? Is it something that somebody else could utilize and that somebody needs? Or is it are we being like the rich man in Lazarus where we're not really paying attention to the, the person that's outside our gate? How should we respond to a desire for significance and competitiveness? Well, There is one area where I think we should desire to be significant and should perhaps be competitive, and that's in outdoing one another and and showing service for others. Jesus said, The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. If we're going to be competitive and we want to be significant, hopefully it's by showing humility. We're competing to show the most humility. We're competing to serve other people. Now, we've looked at ourselves. We've looked at our own hearts. We've looked at what causes us to not be generous. Now I'd like to look at God's heart by looking at a couple uh, passages, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. The one in the Old Testament is in Deuteronomy 15, uh, 1 through 11, and the one in the New Testament is 1 John 3, 16 through 24. Deuteronomy 15, let's read it. It says, At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes you. Okay? Now, just to clarify there were certain years that were the year when debts were canceled. It, w- it didn't mean that you make a loan and then seven years later, if the loan wasn't paid back, then the debt was canceled. But the, 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 the debt cancellation occurred in specific years. So it would be like, OK, saying in 2023, any outstanding debt will be canceled. In two, seven years later, in 2030, any debt will be canceled. 2037, any debt will be canceled. Okay. So you can probably already start to see how people would decide when they would make a loan or if they would make a loan, right? (laughs) You're probably thinking to yourself, yeah, okay. if debt cancellation occurred last year, okay, I'll make a loan now. I've got seven years to get paid back, right? But if the debt cancellation is next year, I probably would not be too likely to make a loan because then the debt's going to be canceled, right, the next year. And then we continue on. It says, however, there need be no poor people among you. For in the land that the Lord your God has given you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. I think he's talking in a plural sense. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving you today. Okay? For the Lord your God will bless you, As he has promised, and you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. He's saying, if you obey me, if you obey the Lord, your God, you follow his commands, God's going to be a blessing. God's going to bless you financially And by blessing the nation financially, you can help provide help for the individuals within the nation that are poor. It doesn't mean that there aren't going to be people that are faced with certain tragedies that have certain needs. It just means that because the nation as a whole will be blessed, there's plenty of resources there to help that person. you will be blessed. And because you're blessed, you can help those that are poor. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God has given you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Obey God. God will bless you. And with what he's blessed you with, you have the resources to provide money for those that are in need. Don't be hard-hearted. Don't be tight-fisted. Be open-handed. Freely lend. That's God's heart. And then he addresses the thought that first came to my mind when I read this, and I'm sure has come to your mind, he says, be careful not to harbor this wicked, he calls it a wicked thought. <laughs> the seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. Then They may then appeal to the Lord against you and you will be found guilty of sin. Don't think, okay, next year is the year for debt cancellation and because of that, I'm not going to loan this guy money. He says, I know you're thinking that, but don't do it. (laughs) That's a wicked thought. He calls it wicked. And then he says, Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. So he says, You got this? He says, Be generous, and then the Lord will bless you. He's not saying, Well, he's not trying to entice you to give so that you get more back. That's the prosperity gospel. But he's saying, God will bless you. That's not the motive for giving, but that's the result of giving. There will always be the poor people in the land. You may remember Jesus quoted this. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. You you, You sense God saying, don't be cheap, don't be calculative, be generous. Give freely. What you have is coming from God and God is asking us to share what we have with others. So I did a little flow chart. (laughs) He said, first of all, God said, fully obey all of my commands, and I'll bless you. Then he says, with the financial blessing you have, I want you to freely lend and forgive. I want you to be open-handed. I want you to be uh, willing to share. I don't want you to be tight-fisted. I don't want you to be... um, cold-hearted. And after you are freely lending forgive your the debt or the loan, then God will bless you. We can give because God has blessed us, but when we give, God will bless us. It works both ways. Let's look at the New Testament. Um and I, I just should should mention one thing I've realized, um, in the, for for those of you that want to look at this in more detail, I would encourage you to do so. I think First John is a letter written by the Apostle John, and I think a lot of it is is kind of a commentary on the Book of John. <laughs> um, and these these particular verses that we're looking at seem to be kind of a commentary on John chapter 15. So I would, there's a lot of uh, similarities between those two, in case you want to go back and look. This is what the Apostle John says. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. I think the response song is going to remind us of the fact that Christ did um, lay down his life for us. And if he did so, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. In particular, he says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in that person? How we give is uh, somewhat of a test of whether God's love is in really in us or not. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. I, I learned a little phrase when I came to Indonesia, uh, nato, um, no action, talk only. <laughs> um, and I think if we uh, admit it, often too, often we, we say we love God, we love each other. But if I look at our, look at our actions, if we look at our, ourselves, how we act, our actions don't match our talk. And the Apostle John is challenging the people to whom he's writing this letter. If you really love God, truly, you love your brother. If they have material needs, they need food, they need clothing, are you willing to give those things or not? Love also... When we give, it also gives us an assurance of our salvation. Um, It talks about, this is how, it talks about in in the verse right above, it, it says, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with action and truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our heart condemns us, we know God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. It says, The one who keeps God's commands lives in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. Um, And I would encourage you also, as I said, to look at John 15. But in John 15, Jesus tells his disciples, remain in me. And he says, if you want to remain in me, you remain in me by obeying my commandments. And he says, and my commandment is that you love one another. (laughs) remain in me by obeying my commandments and my commandment is that you love one another. And in 1 John, John says, and what it means to love one another is to help people out when they have material needs. That's what it means to love one another. And we're called to do that. And if we do, for those that have doubts about their salvation, John seems to be implying that that helps us have assurance because we're keeping his commands and that gives us the assurance of our salvation. If we just say things and we don't act, you have reason to doubt whether you really truly are saved. Another thing, and this also is mentioned in John 15, just like it is here, it talks about God answering our prayers. It says... Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he has commanded us. There's a connection between whether we are obeying God, whether we are loving our neighbor, and whether God answers our prayers. I'd like to look at the benefits of generosity, the dangers of of self-indulgence. Okay, And we've looked at some of this as we've looked at those passages that we just did. But there's other things. I've I've, uh, given some uh, various scriptures here for us to refer to. And you can look at it in your leisure if you'd like. And I'm sure there's other benefits than what I've indicated here, but um, we just saw that one of the benefits of generosity is that God blesses us. We just read that in Deuteronomy 15, 10. In Acts 20, where the Apostle Paul has called the church elders together in Miletus to tell them goodbye for the last time, He talks about the fact that when he was in Ephesus with them, he worked hard day and night so that he could support himself and he could support his colleagues. And it says um, the reason he did this is because of Jesus' command that um, Jesus' command was, um, it's more blessed to give than receive. Sorry, I almost forgot that. And it's not, actually, that quote is not in the, any of the Gospels, but it's apparently well-known among the disciples that Jesus said that. It is more blessed to give than receive. We're blessed when we give. As I said, assurance of our love for God is found as we obey God, not only love God, but love our, our brother and sister in Christ in action and really do it. That helps provide us with an assurance of salvation. Another benefit of generosity is answered prayer. Um, in John 15, I mentioned 1 John 3. James uh, 4 2, verse, uh, verses 2 and 3. Um, if you look at the quote below the picture, it says, This is what James says You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive it. Why do you not receive it? Because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. If you're a self-indulgent person and you're asking God for things so that you can indulge in things, don't expect God to to answer your prayer. And I I have to say, many times, if I started evaluating my prayers or the prayers of others, often the prayers that we pray are often very selfish (laughs) for ourselves, You know, I've, I've used this illustration before, but as, as somebody that runs a business, if I have an employee that comes and asks me for something that they need, let's say I hire someone and they need a, a laptop in order to do their job, if funds are not a, a, an issue for me, I'm more than happy to provide them with a laptop so that they can do their job, right? You'd be crazy not to do that, right? But if I have an employee that comes in and the first day on the job they're starting to ask me, what about my uh, club membership? Uh, Hey, I think I need a nicer car. I think I need, you know, (laughs) how do you think I feel? It's like, hey, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. I can tell this guy is asking for things for his own personal benefit. I'm not going to give him those things. I think God's very similar. God has given us a job to do. He wants us to go out make disciples, to help other people. If we go to him and we ask, we pray to God, and we ask for what we need to do what he's given us to do, financial resources aren't any problem for God, right? He can provide us with whatever, he, whatever we need to do the job that he's given us to do. But I'm afraid oftentimes we go to God, hey, God, help me get a, a, a promotion. Help me get a raise. Help me buy a new, a new car. Help me. <laughs> it's just like what we read in, in, uh, in James. We're, we're, we're asking for things so we can spend those things on our pleasures. And the answer is, and, we're, and then we're, we're surprised that God doesn't give us what we want. Another thing, Another benefit of generosity is joy. Jesus talks about make my joy complete by loving one another, that your joy may be full. I don't know about you, but when I help people, there's a joy that comes. It's a, a lasting joy. If I've known I help somebody along on the way, um, it's uh, something that I, makes me very happy. It, it's, it makes me much happier than if I I've just taken a trip to Bali or something on a vacation. It's a it's a pleasure that, that lasts. It's a joy that lasts. And there's many verses that talk about the fact that when we're generous, there's a reward. I'm not sure what that reward is exactly. It talks about treasures in heaven. I'm not sure exactly what that what that means. But all I know is that there's a reward waiting. There's a, There are treasures in heaven waiting for those that... Are generous. What are the dangers of self indulgence? Well, um, Jesus talked about how um, things can be lost, stolen, ruined. Um, As I get older, I tend to lose more things. So I'm sure many of you that have gotten older, (laughs) I. I forget names, but I also lose things in my house, and then I have to look, and I've, hopefully I can find them. Sometimes I don't. Um, sometimes things are stolen. I've had people break into my apartment before, and they took my guitar, they took my some, some video equipment that was in my place. Things are stolen. Things are ruined. I uh, left church last Sunday and got into an accident, and my can- Toyota Camry got Crash you know it got, got ruined in the, in the front, hopefully the insurance will take care of it, but um, anyway that's that's the reality of things that we have um, possessions that we have. they get lost, stolen, or ruined and, and they're temporary anything and anyway, right? I mean we can't take them with us. I, I think I heard this story about John D. Rockefeller, who was the wealthiest guy in the us at one time, and I think somebody asked his accountant uh, how much he left behind and the accountant said everything. He was expecting to be told what his estate was, what his net worth was when he died, but he left everything behind when he died and we will too. The danger is self-indulgence is temporary. It gives us a temporary high Another thing is, if we don't, or if we are not generous, and we just start accumulating wealth, it attracts uh, false friends and followers. If you look at Proverbs 19:4, it talks about the rich man has many friends, the wealthy man has many friends. You got people hanging around you because they want to enjoy <laughs> and participate in your wealth. Ecclesiastes 5:11 says, "The more that your your um, goods increase, the more there are to consume those goods. Um, I've, I've seen that. I've, I've known some wealthy people that and they have a bunch of friends. But as, as soon as um, they lose that wealth, their friends disappear. I worked in a, in a bank in my first job and I saw that. I saw there was a wealthy apartment developer that was a um, a, a client of mine, and we'd loan money so he could build apartments. And sure enough, he, he was hanging, had people hanging around all the time. And then he had financial difficulty, and it's like all these people disappeared. It's quite sad. Even for myself, as a banker, I didn't have money, but I was a banker because I, I gave people access to money, loaning money. And I know there were people that were seemed to be my friends when I was a a banker. And as soon as I left the bank, I would call up one of these guys that I thought was a friend, and it's like he wouldn't return my call. (laughs) That's what happens. It's one of the dangers of having too much. Being generous will keep you from that wealth can also be deceitful it can you can think that by having money by keeping money you're going to be fulfilled you're going to be satisfied but i've seen many many quotes from people that have a lot of money and they thought that getting a lot of money and keeping a lot of money would make them happy but that they realized when they when they finally made it that it didn't bring them happiness. It was, it was deceitful. That's what Jesus said, and there are four kinds of soil in the parable that he said. And the third kind of soil, there were the, the, the weeds or the tares that, that came up and choked the, the growth of the plant. It choked, choked them. And it talks about one of those being the deceitfulness of wealth, another was worries of life, and another was uh, pleasure. These are the kinds of things, if we pursue them, they're going to choke our spiritual life. And you're going to be... um, You may call yourself a Christian, but maybe your lifestyle doesn't look any different than a non-Christian. And the abundance of wealth, if we're not generous, if we hoard it, it can actually cause us to forget God. If you look at Deuteronomy 8... God told the Israelites, "Okay, I'm going to bring you into the Promised Land. I'm going to, if you obey me, I'm going to bless you." But he says, "Your tendency is going to be to forget me once you become wealthy, once you have a lot, you hoard it, and you start crediting yourself. You pat yourself on the back. Look at all, look at all that we've done." Proverbs uh, 30, 8 through nine. It's a Most of of Proverbs is written by Solomon, but this is uh, sayings of Augur. And Augur um, there's something there called the I call it the middle class prayer. (laughs) He's praying that he can actually be middle class. He doesn't want to be poor. He doesn't want to be rich. He says, "God, keep me from being poor because if I'm poor, I may steal and so defame Your name." He doesn't want to bring disrepute to God's name, but he says. God, keep me from being too wealthy. Because if I'm too wealthy, I may forget you and say, Who's God? Wealth gives us a a sense of of, uh, self confidence that we shouldn't have, a a sense of arrogance. And the best way we can, the best thing we can do to keep ourselves from that is being generous. This is a quote that I think um, many of us can relate to. It's a good summary of the things that we've been talking about. The dangers of, of uh, not being generous, being self-indulgent, and the blessings of being generous. This is Paul writing to Timothy in Ephesus, and he says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. There's blessings for those that are generous not only in the next life but in this life and I I would hope that when people look at JICF, look at our church look at us as members of this church they look and they say, hey, JSEF and the people they're in are known to be rich in good deeds. They're known to be generous. They're known to be willing to share. And I can count many times there are people that have come to faith because they've seen that in this church. If I had time, I'd share stories, but I don't. But there's there's a lot. Because when people see that you're loving them, indeed, not just in, in what you say, they see a genuineness to our faith that is attractive to others. And people want to have more of that. And they're drawn to our Lord because of it. So in summary... How should we respond? Well, what I would encourage you to do is I would encourage you to intentionally seek out those who are less blessed than you. Be intentional. Our tendency is to want to hang around people, to talk to people, maybe before the service, after the service, or just in general, people that are just like us. Socioeconomically, maybe ethnically, maybe even nationality-wise, we tend to seek out people that are like us. Um, but perhaps you can look around and see some people that are not quite as blessed as you are. Seek them out, get to know them, understand what, understand them, find out how their life is, what their needs are. Maybe you invite them out for lunch. (laughs) Invite them to your home. And you consider helping them financially. Don't be tight-fisted. Don't be hard-hearted. And just like in the Old Testament passages, you, you may recall there was a distinction made between those that were of Israel and those that were not of Israel. The Israelis were to forgive the debt every seven years of each other. It didn't say you, you don't forgive the debt of the non-Israeli, non-Israelite, but you would of the Israelite because they're your brothers and sisters. The same within the church. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6.10, he says, do good to all, good, do good to everyone, but especially to the household of the faith. There's a priority for people that are believers, that are our brothers and sisters in Christ. But that doesn't mean that we're only generous to them, Right? Let's pray. Father, we confess how often we take credit for whatever wealth or prosperity we have. We take credit for ourselves. We credit ourselves for all that we have and don't Acknowledge that everything we have is because of you. Father, we want to obey you. And we see that those who obey you are blessed by you. And when you do bless us, Father, we want to give freely and generously. Father, we want our hearts to be like your heart. We want to be generous and freely give and forgive debt make loans for those that have needs provide for those needs we want to do that Father I pray that you would soften our heart help us have an open hand rather than a tight clenched fist and as we are Father we Um, are only merely offering back to you some of what you've given to us. We thank you for your word and the reminder that it gives us. I pray that what we hear today would be put into action by all of us. In your son's name we pray, amen.